Uh, If you could do me a favor right now, if you could turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 13 in your Bible. Uh, And in the Pew Bible, that's on page 690. So if you could just open up to that passage for me right now. Uh, So in planning this sermon today, I, I talked to Adam a little bit, and I asked him about how long this sermon should be. And what he said is, you know, I've been trying to shoot for 40, and I I tend to hit 45 or 50. Uh, He said, what you could do to really gain the heart of the people that are here today is go less than 40 minutes. So here's, here's my promise to you. I will not promise you that I will preach better than Adam today. But I will promise you that I will preach shorter than Adam today. Uh, And I know for some of us, shorter automatically means better. So maybe I am promising that I'll preach better. I don't know. Uh, But anyway, if you could uh, open up to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 13. I'm going to stay in that passage today. So uh, you you don't have to jump around the Bible at all. Uh, But before we begin, what I'd really like to do is just uh, spend a, a moment in prayer so that I could kind of center myself to get ready for today's message. Dear uh, Heavenly Father, we do love you. We do praise you. We do worship you. Heavenly Father, come. Sweet Savior Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, come. We know that we can speak no true things unless you are in that. And so, Lord, I pray for your power here today. Lord, I pray that you come and your words are what comes out of my mouth today. Wherever I am confusing or I lack clarity, I just pray that you make my words so that they make sense to those who are here today to listen. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, once upon a time, there was a man and his young daughter. And this couple, this father and daughter combo, they loved each other deeply. They were great friends. But the father noticed that as time went on, that daughter started to spend less and less time with him. She started to excuse herself from their evening walks. And that really bothered the father. He got kind of hurt by the fact that she would excuse herself Time passed, and it came to that man's birthday, and for that birthday, the daughter brought him a pair of slippers that she had made, and she said, Dad, I've been skipping my walk so that I could make these slippers, and they were a beautiful pair of slippers, and the man began to realize why that daughter was skipping out on that time with him. He looked at those slippers, and he said, My darling, I, I love your slippers, but for my next birthday could you just buy me slippers so I could spend all day with you? Because I would much rather have my daughter than anything she could ever make for me. Element Church, our topic for today is prayer. I think so often we make the mistake of that man's daughter, and we we do that with God, where we get so busy with the things of the world, where we get so busy with our life that we forget to spend time with God. And that robs us of the relationship that God wants for us. And it also robs us of the blessings that he has to give to us. So my hope for today's sermon is that we'll look at a passage called the Lord's Prayer. And because of this passage, we'll learn a little bit more about prayer. And that will inspire us 
to go regularly to God in prayer so that we can see how he is our father. So if you could open up to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 13. If you could also do me a favor, if you could just stand for the reading of God's word so we could show reverence to the Holy Spirit that inspired today's scripture. So Matthew 6, 5 to 13. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray at the street corners in the synagogues where they will be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their rewards. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your God who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The sermon title for today is Prayer is where intimacy and truth meets. What we'll see as we look more deeply into prayer is there's really two aspects to prayer. There's the relational aspect where we spend time with God. It's, It's intimacy. It's time with Him. But that relationship is always going to be grounded in who God is and the characteristics of our God. So God is going to determine what our prayer life should look like. So we're going to look into this passage a little bit more deeply and see how prayer is where intimacy meets truth. Jesus starts this passage with uh, verses 5 and 6, where he, he says, Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray on street corners and in synagogues. The first error that we sometimes have in prayer is that we don't want to have an intimate relationship. We don't want a relationship with God when we pray. What Jesus is touching on here is there was a a tradition amongst the Pharisees. If you've never heard that word Pharisees before, they were a subgroup of the Jewish people. Uh, They were the religious leaders of the time. So nowadays we would call them rabbis. Uh, You might even call them pastors. They were the religious leaders of their time. Their custom was that three times a day, they would pray. So they were following through on this custom. It was also customary for the Jewish people to stand during times of prayer because standing shows a sign of respect that maybe sitting doesn't. That's why um, people in the military, they stand at attention when a superior is addressing them. That's why I asked you to stand for scripture. So we actually see kind of right off the bat two great things about their prayer life. It was disciplined And at least outwardly, it showed respect. I I think all of us should have that in our prayer lives. So what's the problem? Why are they hypocrites? Well, what the Pharisees started to do is they would go into congested areas so that people would see them praying. So their prayer life, it wasn't so much based on reaching out and talking to God. It was more about getting a great reputation for being this awesome religious guy. 
They weren't concerned about God at all. They were more concerned about what other people thought about them than what God thought about them. It's a very dangerous place to be in our prayer lives. We might hypothesize and try to figure out why these Pharisees got to a place in their spiritual lives where they were more concerned about what people thought about them than what God thought about them. Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, he says that we all take three big questions with us whenever we go to meet God. And the way we answer those questions, it's going to determine what our relationship with God is going to look like. Those questions that he asks, or that we all ask of God is, one, does God listen to us in our prayers? The second one is, um, is God far when we try to pray to him? And the third one is, is God unfair? These Pharisees, they answered at least one of those questions in a way that does not line up with the Bible. You can imagine how out of control your prayer life's going to be if you believe that maybe God's not listening to you. You know, if God's not listening to your prayers, then prayer kind of becomes just a waste of your breath, right? Because he's not going to hear you anyway. If God is distant, you're not going to feel his presence, so going to prayer again, it really doesn't make sense. If God is unfair, then prayer is a very scary place to be. Because honestly, God might just punish you for the sake of it if he's not fair at all. So if you believe that he's unfair or doesn't listen or not with you, then the only reason you would pray is to gain a reputation. Because at the end of the day, you don't believe that God would reward you for any of that. So we see in these Pharisees' lives, they believe something that was totally off about God. They either believe that he wasn't listening, he wasn't fair, or he wasn't with them through this. You know, just to illustrate what our prayer life should look like, just for a second, if you could kind of imagine it with me. You are heavily in debt to the IRS. You owe so many taxes that you will never be able to pay them off. Hopefully this is imaginary for you, right? Um, You owe so many taxes that you can never pay it off. The President of the United States somehow hears about your problem. And he calls you up and he says, I want you to come to me and I want you to tell me all of your problems and we're going to work together so that we could solve this. Now, if you believe that the president was fair, that he would listen to you and that he would stand beside you through all the problems that you were struggling with, how would that meeting go? I'm pretty sure if you believe that he was fair and would listen, you would direct all of your attention on him. You would bring up every problem that you have because you know that he has the power to save you from all of the things that you're struggling with. What you would never do is you wouldn't concern yourself with any other person entering into the room. All of your focus would be on him. You know, you wouldn't, if the president starts talking to you saying that he's going to solve your problems, you wouldn't say, hey, hold on, chief. All my followers on Twitter, they need to hear about this. And, you know, you run over to that picture of George Washington on the wall to go take a selfie with him. You know, you wouldn't do that. Or, you know, if you're a woman taking a selfie, you do that weird duck face thing where it's like, you know, you wouldn't do those things. Why wouldn't you do that? The reality is you would recognize that that would be disrespectful and a waste of the president's time. 
so you would never treat the president like that. If those things are disrespectful to the president, imagine how much worse it is when we do that to God in prayer. When we make prayer about building up our reputation instead of building up our relationship with God. Now, I don't want us for a second to look back at these Pharisees and and gloat about how hypocritical they are. You know, let's not for a second think that religious hypocrisy died 2,000 years ago because the reality is it's still alive and well today. In truth, every single human being on the face of the planet has some kind of hypocrisy that they are struggling with. It's going to look different in our culture because we believe different things. People don't gain bonus points by standing on the the corner of a street and praying loudly. We think that's weird. You know, we run away from the bullhorn guy. We don't think like, hey, that's a great religious leader. I want to just listen to him. We run away from that. And so let's look at what these Pharisees were doing in their heart to understand their hypocrisy. Like we've been saying before, in their hearts, in some way, they didn't believe certain true things about God. And so they were trying to use prayer to build this reputation. The reality is that while their mouths were saying prayers, they weren't praying at all. They weren't going to God. And that's really my deep concern as a pastor My deep concern as a pastor is not how the people of God are praying, but the fact that the people of God are simply not praying, that they're not going to God at all. And if I could be allowed to say something that's kind of harsh, the reality is I can think of no greater hypocrite in all of the world than someone who claims to be a follower of Christ yet fails to pray. You know, you want your friends to think of you as joyful and cheerful because of your relationship with Jesus, but you don't go to God and thank him for everything that you've given to, for everything he's given to you? That's hypocrisy. You want people to think that you're humble and self-effacing, yet you don't go to God and you don't confess your sins? That's hypocrisy. You want people to think you're loving, but you don't go to God and bring up their needs to him in prayer. That's hypocrisy. We all have some form of hypocrisy that we're struggling with. And I know those are hard things to say. And I want you to know that if there's anybody I see as a great hypocrite, it's myself. Because how many times has there been in my life where I failed to pray when I knew that God was calling me to it? I I can't even really tell you how large that number is. But here's the great thing about prayer. See, though we all come to prayer as hypocrites because we don't live up to our own standards of righteousness, when you start to pray because of the power of prayer, we become pilgrims and we abandon our hypocrisy and we go in search of sincerity. And when we start to pray to God, he loves to give us that sincerity. He loves to create that intimate relationship with us where we feel close to him. So when we pray, we are human beings who are destroying every aspect of hypocrisy in our heart. Jesus gives us one good practical step that we could take 
so that we don't have hypocrisy in our prayer life. We, we see it in verse 6. What he says is, when you go into your room, close the door. What he's kind of bringing up there in verse 6 is the idea that all good prayer should be private in nature. You're not thinking about those who are around you. You're not wondering what they're thinking of your prayer. You're focused on God and God alone. And even if you're doing group prayer, a good prayer should be modest in nature, where you're not flaunting your abilities, where you're only focused on God. And, you know, I really love this imagery. He says, close the door. What Jesus is getting at is you go into your room and you close the door to the world. That means you spend alone time with God. You, you remove all the distractions that might happen during prayer. So that means you turn off your smartphone. You're not looking at that. You're not looking at your calendar. You try to spend time away from your children so that you can spend one-on-one -on -one time with God. And what Jesus is ultimately driving at is if you close the door to the world, God's going to open the door to his kingdom. And when you walk through that door, you're going to see that prayer is where intimacy meets truth. Jesus addresses a second error that we might make in uh, verses 7 to 8 of this passage, where he says, do not heap up empty phrases because uh, the people would do that because they did not think that God would hear them. The second error is to believe false things about God, where we, we, we have pictures of God that just simply aren't true. And the Gentiles thought that God lacked power, that if you didn't bring something up enough, he wouldn't hear you in prayer. So what the Gentiles would do is they would repeat either a phrase or a word or sometimes even a sound over and over and over again till it had no meaning whatsoever. And it kind of created the self-hypnosis where they just kind of zoned out completely. Jesus is addressing the danger of meaningless prayers where we simply zone out, where we're not focused on the words that we have to say. What we're beginning to see right now is prayer has two really important aspects. There's this relational aspect, but we also need to be focused on our words because it, it needs to be focused on the truth of who God is. There are really... The, the danger of zoning out in prayer, we, we kind of can really see this in prayers that we repeat over and over and over again, and also those prayers that we have grown to memorize. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's fine to repeat a prayer over and over and over again. Jesus will even tell a parable of a persistent widow who goes to a judge over and over and over again, and the idea is that we can be like that with God, but the important thing is our prayer should always be earnest. It should always be sincere. It should always be from our hearts. And we can repeat memorized prayers over and over again as well. You know, what we're focusing on right now is the Lord's Prayer. It's probably the most memorized and most repeated prayer in all of Christianity. So just, just as a poll right now, who here has memorized the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, who knows it by heart? Yeah, it's probably the only time in prayer where you pray in Old English, uh, you never use hallowed in regular language, but you use it in this prayer. So we can, we can kind of decipher the, the danger from the truth here. Because some of us, we, we have this spiritual checklist where we know we have to pray, so we ramble through the Lord's Prayer as quickly as we possibly can, and we don't focus on any of the words of it. We just got to get prayer off the checklist. 
You know, if that's what your prayer life looks like, let me tell you, God does not want the scraps from your table. If you're hoping that your prayers are going to have some kind of effect on God, it's probably going to be pretty sorely lacking if that's the attitude you take into prayer. However, you can take this Lord's Prayer and if you're focusing on every word, if you're focusing on every, pr- every phrase, and it's coming from your heart, you can pray the Lord's Prayer a hundred times over, and it could be the, a foundation for a great spiritual life, because those words mean something to you. Now, I know some of us here today, maybe you've never really gotten into the practice of prayer, because you don't know how to do it. It's, it's scary because it's unknown. Let me submit to you that maybe a great way to start a prayer life is to memorize this passage, the Lord's Prayer, and pray it over and over and over again and focus on each and every one of these words. And what you can do is sometimes focus on these words and ask questions of what this text is bringing up and answer them in prayer. So just as an example, it starts off, Our Father... The question is, how has God been your father today? You could say, God, you've been my father because you've loved me and you've provided for me. I felt your presence with me all day and I I just want to thank you for being with me. Or the other one, um, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Uh, It's the idea of what sins or what evil have you committed today? God, I, I just really need to come to you and apologize because I am so incredibly jealous of Pastor Adam's facial hair. (laughs) You know, you can focus on these words and bring them up to God, and that can be the foundation of a beautiful prayer life. We've talked about two errors that we can make during prayer, and what we're going to do now is focus for just a little time on the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to see, I can't talk about every single word and every single phrase, but what we'll see is three themes that arise out of prayer. And because of these three themes, we're going to see that prayer is where intimacy meets truth. So the first thing that Jesus brings up in this prayer, it's uh, verses 9 and 10. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God wants us to picture him as our Father, and we are his children. Before we really get into prayer, it's important to note that you cannot pray to God as your Father unless you follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You cannot go to Him unless you are a believer. God is not your Father if you don't believe some fundamental things about Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father but through me. So whenever we pray, it always has to be in the name of Jesus. We're doing it through his power. Just to be clear, there are a couple of things that you have to believe in order to really hold God as your father. The first is that you have to believe that Jesus Christ is God and that he came here on earth as a human being. You also have to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that there is no way for you to get into heaven but through the righteousness of Christ. And finally, you have to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He was resurrected. And through his resurrection, he proved once and for all that he has the power to overcome death. Now, if you're here today and you believe all of those things, 
I have great news for you. The Bible says that the God of the heavens is your Father. And what's great about that is that should embolden our prayers because we know that God in heaven is a good Father and He's going to answer every single prayer that we ask of Him. Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. I don't want you to get me wrong. God's not going to answer every one of your prayers in a way that you perhaps want, but he will because he is your father. He will answer your prayers. And when he answers it in a way that's maybe not consistent with what you want, he's doing it because he wants what's best for you. And he ultimately wants best for his name and the glory of his kingdom. So these, this is a great promise that we have about our prayer life that we know that we can go to God in prayer. The first theme of prayer is the theme of awe and thanksgiving. And if you think about it, uh, when you're three or four years old, how awe-inspiring is your father? You know, I thought my dad was the strongest man in the world when I was four years old. I thought he was the smartest man as well. We think all these great and high lofty things about our earthly fathers, and it's the same way with our heavenly father. We are just supposed to be awestruck with his power and be overwhelmed by that. And when we feel those things, when we see those characteristics of God, it's supposed to produce thanksgiving in our heart. This idea that God is our father, it's perhaps the greatest show of this thesis that I've said a number of times now, that prayer is where intimacy meets truth. Because Father, it's, it's an intimate term. It's, it's relational in nature. But that relationship is based on facts about your Father. You know, I'm going to just tell you three facts about my dad, and I'll show you how it kind of uh, affects our relationship with one another. Firstly, I mean, my dad is a Christian. He is not a Buddhist. Secondly, my dad is a cheeseburger kind of guy. You know, he does not want caviar. He doesn't like sushi. He likes good old American food. This last fact um, is not meant to be a controversial political statement, but this is a reality about my dad. He is a Republican. And quite frankly, I don't even bring up the other political party around him because that turns into a conversation. It's like I don't even disagree with them. Just that word sets them off. So with those three facts that we know about my dad, let's just say one day I, I come to my dad and say, you know, dad, for your birthday, I would love to just spend the entire day with you. He'd be really excited because he gets to spend time with his oldest son now. And I, I take him out. And the first thing that we go do is we go to a Buddhist prayer meditation. And then we follow that up by a, a caviar dinner that's a $1,000 a plate Democratic fundraiser where we listen to the merits of Obamacare. You know, how, how is my dad going to react to that? He'd either be really angry or really hurt because the reality is that day was planned for someone who was not my dad. I was trying to create my dad into somebody else other than who he was. The sad thing is, so, so often in prayer, we, we do the same thing to God. The Bible teaches us that God created us in his image, but so often we try to create God in our own image. 
We try to create a God who's convenient for us to believe so we can live the life we want to live. And we we tend to do this by taking true aspects of who God is and taking them out of context and overemphasizing them. So God is love. I mean, if God is love, then that means he really doesn't care about my, my sin life. That's false, son. He cares deeply about your sins. He is good and he is righteous and he is holy. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. He cares a lot about your sins. Or we reverse that and we say, God is so righteous and so holy, he could never love someone like me. It's wrong again. God is love. And if he says he loves you, your finite sin will never be so powerful as to overwhelm his infinite love. He loves you, and that's the truth. No matter what you believe, that's where God stands with you. So we see that a good prayer life, it goes side by side with a life spent studying Scripture. Because when you study Scripture, the the Bible is going to cut away these errors that we believe about God, these false misconceptions that we hold about God, and is going to point us to who the true God is so we can worship God in truth. Jesus has one more statement that's supposed to inspire awe in our hearts, where he says, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed, you could kind of retranslate that to say, make your name holy. So we're saying, God, make your name holy in my heart. This idea of holiness in the scripture, it's the idea that God is separate and he is pure and he is good. He is not tainted or made impure by the things that are happening on earth. And so God is separate and he is holy. See, when we say, God, make your name holy, what we're asking is that God will change our hearts in such a way as it lines up with who he is and what he is doing. And we can only give thanks in that moment. When God is truly holy in your heart, all the other aspects of prayer are going to start to fall into place. When God is holy in your heart, you're going to want his kingdom to come and you're going to want his will to be done. You're going to confess your sins because you no longer want them in your life. So this step of being awe-inspired by God, it's an incredibly crucial step in prayer because we're focusing on who God is and what he's all about. If you pray regularly and you often feel that your prayer life is kind of limp, it might be because you kind of skip this step. I think of a lot of us, we, we fall into the idea that prayer is just about asking God for all of these things. You know, God, I, I, I pray that you give me a good day. And we, we fail to take the time to just focus on who God is and what he's all about. When you skip awe and you just talk about all the things that you want from God, what you're really saying to him is, I want your blessings, but I don't want you. You're saying, I want the gift, but I, I don't want the giver. And I can only imagine how how much that grieves God's heart to have a child who kind of believes that that wants the things he has to give more than the, the child wants the father himself. So the first step and theme of good prayer is being awe inspired and giving thanks to God. 
The second step, it's, it's seen when, when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. This is the theme of petition, where we go to God and we begin to ask him for all of the things that we need in our lives and all the things that we need in our lives and the lives of others, where we're lifting up the needs that are on our hearts and the things that we need to live a joyful life. The great thing about God is he has a storehouse that's infinitely big, and he loves to give us things from that storehouse. And the only time that God stops giving is when we stop asking. So we should be emboldened to always be asking God for things because we know that every good and every perfect gift comes from him. This prayer, give us this day our daily bread, that was a real concern during the time of Jesus Christ. That um, a lot of the people who would listen to Jesus, they didn't know when their next meal was going to come. They weren't sure if they were going to eat that day. I think the reality is most of us know when our next meal is coming, right? It's probably going to be about noon today. So long as I keep that promise about preaching short, we should be out by noon. Uh, So what does this mean for us? It means that you bring up every need that you have to live a life of joy spent following God. So any emotional need that you have, any physical need that you have, any spiritual need you have, you bring that up to God and you ask him to provide that for you. See, prayer is a deeply humbling experience because we recognize that we lack things and we need to get them from God. And so we ask him in order to grow in this relationship with him. There's one last kind of interesting thing I noticed about in my study of the Lord's Prayer. If uh, you look at the the pronouns that are used, um, they're all plural. So if you look at this, give us this day our daily bread. The, The whole prayer is plural. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus doesn't teach us to pray, Lord, please give me today the things that I need. It's always kind of communal in nature. There's a community that you are always praying for. Why does Jesus teach us to pray like this? If you remember earlier in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. I don't know if I need to say this, but there's no such thing as a one-person kingdom. Every kingdom has multiple people in it. And so when you're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, what you're saying is, God, I want you to be king of my life, and I want to partake in your community, the church. So you're praying for God's kingdom to come, and that's going to entail a radical transformation of what this world is going to look like. So you're not only praying for your bread today, but you should be praying that God meets the needs of other people today. When you're praying for this, you're praying that the poor will be fed. You're praying that politics will be fair. You're praying that our court systems will judge with fairness. You're praying for all these things to be set right again. This is a radical prayer where we're wanting something completely different than the reality of what our world has to offer. I want to make it real clear to you. If you're praying 
the Lord's Prayer, you'd better be living this as a lifestyle as well, where you're living the type of life where you're going out and you're trying to meet the needs of other people, where you're there for your friends who are in need, where you're feeding the poor. Because if you're praying this prayer and you are living a self-centered lifestyle, then you're right back to being those hypocrites that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. And that is not a place that I think any of us want to be. Let's look at the last theme of prayer. And hopefully by now we, we've seen that prayer is where intimacy meets truth. The last theme is, is brought up in verses 12 and 13 of this passage where Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The last theme of prayer is the theme of confession. Where you recognize your evil, where you recognize the things that you have done wrong. Jesus will tell a story, and it's meant to represent who we are. He'll, he'll tell a story about how we are so, we are a hundred trillion dollars in debt to the king. And this debt is so bad that the interest rate is growing at a rate that we can't make this right. And no matter how hard we work, the debt only gets worse and worse and worse. So the punishment, what we deserve, is to be thrown in jail into a debtor's prison and locked away forever. That's the righteous punishment of our sins. But here's the beauty of confession. When you confess and you admit the things that you have done wrong, that confession becomes a key, and it's held in the palms of Jesus. And he uses that key to open your jail cell and set you free. So if you are feeling weighed down with guilt right now, in confessing, we let go of that guilt. Jesus gives us the reaction that we're supposed to have when we confess our sins. He says, as we have also forgiven our debtors. It's the idea that if we are confessing our sins, we are also forgiving those who have sinned against us. Because when you recognize how much wrong you've done against God, there's no way you can hold a grudge against anybody else. Because nobody owes you as much as you owe God. So the confessing person is also a forgiving person. As we kind of come to a, a bit of a close in this sermon, I don't want you to think that confession is an easy thing. The reality is sometimes confession is the hardest thing in all of the world. Jesus says that if you want to be his disciple, you must carry your cross daily and come follow him. The cross was a place of torture it was a place of ridicule and pain. And this cross that we're asked to carry daily, I think the cross that we're most often asked to carry is the cross of confession, where we look honestly at the things that we have done wrong and we simply apologize for them. This cross of Christ, it's, it's the great paradox of our faith. And it, it's the central theme of Christianity and confession is meant to be the central reaction to that theme. So in the cross, we see all kinds of strange things. We firstly see that the cross is a place of judgment and punishment, but because of the cross, we receive mercy and we receive grace. On the cross, Jesus died, but because of the cross, Jesus lives forever in heaven. 
The cross was a place of ridicule and shame. People spit upon and ridiculed Jesus for being up there. But because of the cross and because of Jesus' obedience, Philippians says that at the end of time, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see all these wonderful paradoxes and we see the power of God reign supreme in the cross. It's the same way for confession with us. When we confess our sins, we die to self so that we can live with Jesus Christ. When we confess our sins, we accept the humiliation of the things that we've done. We don't run away from that anymore. And in doing, we accept God's glory for us, that he has a better plan for us than the sin that is in our lives. So just one closing thought for you today. If you have been struggling with some kind of guilt and you don't want to bring it up to God because you're afraid about what that says to you, I just ask you to let it go, to just trust in God. Those, that, those holes that are in Jesus Christ's hands, they're proof to each and every one of us that he can catch us when we fall. So if you believe that God is your good and loving Father, I ask that you confess your sins and you trust Him to take care of those things that you have done wrong. And when you trust Him, I promise you His righteousness is enough to give you everything that you need to feel clean and whole and pure again. Thank you and amen. What I'd like to do now is uh, for Chad and the worship band to come forward and... uh, I'm going to lead us in just a time of prayer. I think that's the right thing to do with a sermon like this. And what I'm going to do is work through the Lord's Prayer, and I'm just going to give us some time to reflect upon its words. So if you could just bow your heads with me and and focus on on these words with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In your heart, Just take a minute to answer to God how he is your father. And if you could take some time to simply thank God for the things that he's done in your life. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What things are God calling you to do today that are in accordance with his will? Give us this day our daily bread. What things do you desperately need from God this morning? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. What things do you just need to confess to God this morning and lay at the feet of the cross?
What people in your life do you need to forgive? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks. Before uh, Chad starts the, the worship music, Adam asked me to kind of give a homework assignment. And I, I think the goal of Christian worship is that we're supposed to be unceasing prayer, that we're always supposed to spend our lives focused on God. And one way to create that kind of lifestyle is to begin and end your day in prayer. I get this idea from Psalms chapter 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. So I think all of our goals should be to spend a great time in the morning and a great time in the evening with God. So my goal and my homework assignment to, for you is to take one step towards making that a reality. If you have not really created a, a, a life of prayer yet, next, this, this next morning, just wake up 10 minutes earlier and spend that time with God. Or maybe you have a good time of morning prayer. Go to God this evening and spend some time with Him. Maybe if you're married, start praying with your wife. If you pray in both mornings and evenings, maybe just focus on those three themes that I gave to you to be awe-inspired by God, to, to petition Him, and to confess His name, and to confess to Him, and, and start to focus on those aspects of prayer. So whatever, wherever you're at in your spiritual life right now, just take one small step to making morning and evening prayer a reality in your lives.